Amen. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Matt Ortiz. And uh, please, again, if you're new here after the the, uh, service, um, introduce yourself to me. I'd like to, to get to know you. And also, I want, if you don't know Ming and Michelle, who just read the scripture and, and, and prayed, uh, please introduce yourself to them. Uh, they're brand new, and from the very beginning, they just rolled up their sleeves and started, started serving, which is just awesome. So please be sure to get to know Ming and Michelle. So uh, today, we come to the end of our fall series. We've been looking at the life of Moses and the life of the Israelites, mostly from the ancient book of Exodus, but also, like this morning, from a couple of passages from the book of Numbers. Now, we called this series Faithful, God's Story of Redemption. Now, here's what's important for us to remember. In light of the fact that I think most people treat the Bible, unfortunately, as just directions for life, as just biblical principles, as just, you know, the, the list of what you should do and, and what you shouldn't do. But it is so much more than that. That is just such a, 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 if that's the only thing that you see when it comes to the scriptures, it's a low view of scripture. What we need to remember, that all of Scripture, from the very beginning from the, to, to the very end, and everything in between, the whole thing is about God's story of redemption. God redeeming his people. God redeeming his, his creation. Um, we see that so clearly, I think, in the, over the last couple of months as we've been in this series. We see that so clearly in the life of Moses and the Israelites. And that's why many, many centuries later, Jesus refers to it when he's talking to Nicodemus in that second passage that we just read. Now, I don't know how many of you have read that passage from Numbers before, but it is, it's, it's one of the, the Old Testament is full of crazy sounding stories. I think if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've just gotten used to it. But if you hear and, or read these stories for the very first time, I mean, they straight out seem a little crazy. And this is one of them. All these snakes going throughout all of a couple million people. How many snakes must there be? Snakes everywhere throughout all of the Israelites biting and killing people. It's crazy. Well, I think when when you think about that, it brings images to our minds like scenes from from this movie, right? (laughs) Or or maybe a scene from from this movie. How many of you have seen that one? Anybody see that one? Not one of you have seen that one. All right, one person, maybe two. You're afraid to admit it. You're like, yeah, and I loved it. Or maybe you remember this video that Vint that went viral. Do you remember that one? Where they sewed the cobra's mouth shut and the baby's playing with the the cobra and the cobra keeps bonking the baby in the head. I mean, it's terrifying. I mean, this and this stuff here is the stuff of of nightmares, right? Nightmares. Now, maybe you can imagine the story a little better. I don't know. There's a popular logo that 
or icon that we see in medical facilities and on medical equipment around the world, and especially in the United States. It's a snake wrapped around a a pole. It's become this universal symbol of of healing. It, It even shows up in Greek mythology. Do you ever wonder why? Now, Here's the thing, I've, I have based my sermon on the works and wisdom of people like Dick Kaufman and Tim Keller, guys that have really helped me understand the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is so much more than just moral stories, uh, like Aesop's fable, look this horrible thing that happened to, the, to this person, so don't do that, and, and, and look how this person was good and he was blessed, so make sure you do that. That's just kind of a shallow, short-sighted view of, of Scripture. It doesn't take into the account the big picture of God redeeming his, his people to himself, redeeming his creation. And these guys help me understand the Old Testament stories. And one of the things that they point out over and over again is that there is a universal common knowledge that we are not the way that we're supposed to be. There is a universal common knowledge that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And so what happens, our reaction then, is that every single one of us has a deep longing for healing. And unfortunately, a lot of times, we go chasing after healing or feeling better or fixing things in a way that leads to more hurt and more damage. Do you know what I'm talking about? You've seen it. And you've seen it in your own life. I know I have. Well, Jesus had something to say about this, and he's, he's talking to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John in the third chapter, and he uses this Old Testament passage from the book of, of Numbers, a passage that, that Nicodemus would have been familiar with, very familiar with. And Jesus is teaching, using this passage, and teaching Nicodemus about our fatal sickness, not just a sickness like you're a little sick, but our fatal sickness and also our only true healing. So if you're taking notes, we have uh, um, the outline in the bulletin, and we'll start by looking at the sickness, our, our fatal sickness, okay? Let's look at this passage from, from Numbers. The children of Israel are complaining again, and this time it's about the food, right? Well, there wasn't any food. But God miraculously provided manna every single morning. But then they get sick of it, and so they start complaining. So in verse 6, God sends fiery serpents into the camp. Now, anybody here been bitten by a venomous snake? Anyone? One person. Oh, man. Goodness. Did you take any pictures? Man, I, I... Getting bit by a a venomous snake makes you feel like you've been set on fire. And I was tempted to show you pictures of snake bites from venomous snakes. I I Googled it, and images, Google images search for for snake bites from poisonous snakes, and that was a huge mistake. (laughs) I was tempted, I was I'm going to show them pictures of snake bites. They were just way too disgusting. I mean, just snake bites that weren't treated right away. 
I mean, it is absolutely horrible. The wound first gets inflamed, and then it gets swollen, and the the flesh seems to just pull apart and deteriorate, and, and it's just gnarly. And then you get a raging raging fever and this insatiable thirst and and the feeling of of burning fire would spread throughout the rest of your body and then you die. I'm glad you didn't die. I'm glad you got it treated right away. You know, I read this story and my first reaction, I don't know, maybe your reaction is like mine. You read this story and you're like, that's totally not fair. Right? God just overreacted like big time. That was not necessary. Hmm. So, well, maybe we need to look a bit more closely at the Israelites' complaint. In verse 5, what do the people say? The people say, we loathe this worthless food. This, this food that, that God miraculously sent to his people was called manna. And it was sweet like honey. And they could make you know, pastries and bread with it. And, and sh- you know, this manna, it showed up every single day. And all they had to do was go outside and pick it up. This was, right here, this manna was a direct and wonderful and miraculous daily testimony of God's power, God's commitment, and God's deliverance and love, and then they began to detest it. And we do the same thing, don't we? We do the same thing. (laughs) We are so incredibly blessed by God. I mean, we just, I don't know, I think we just get caught up live and we don't even think about it anymore. We are so blessed by God. At first, I mean, we're incredibly grateful. Maybe things were, were difficult and then something came through for us and, and we're stoked. Or we were lost and then we were found and we have a relationship with God. It's great. But then we start taking all of our incredible blessings for granted. We start thinking or acting like like we earned it. I got my act together. I don't know what's wrong with all these other losers. If they were just like me, they'd be all right. They believe that. I can't believe that they believe that. I'm smart. I believe this. Why did you do that? You're, You're an idiot. We get judgmental. We forget. We forget we were in the same place. And that it was only by God's grace that we came to a new understanding. We start taking our blessings for granted. You can can pick up on it just by the way you talk about other people. Or maybe we just think that, you know, it's all awesome. That's cool, but it's just not... It's not quite enough. I also need this. So these blessings aren't good enough for us. And then, then we turn into professional complainers. We complain... All the time. Why do we do that? It's actually a symptom of a deeper problem. It all goes back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Okay, so you look in that section of the Bible, and where do we find ourselves? Where does humankind find ourselves? In paradise. We are in paradise And everything is absolutely perfect. There is no sadness. There is no sickness. There is no death. God says, you can do absolutely anything you want to do, except don't eat of that one tree. That is the only rule they had. 
I mean, you think about all the rules that exist now. I mean, you can't even keep a fraction of them in mind. They had one rule. Do anything you want. Just one thing you don't do. Don't eat of that one tree. But the serpent shows up and he says, hey, that's not fair. God doesn't know. I mean, he's, I don't think he has your best interests in mind. In fact, that's probably the best tree. You don't know what you're missing. And when the spiritual venom of the serpent pierced their hearts and souls, an all-consuming, unquenchable discontent and thirst began, and they were unwilling to trust the love of God. It was not enough. They also needed something else. And now our souls are poisoned with sin. There's extremely painful damage. There is a loss of function. The Bible teaches that every single soul begins poisoned with sin, an unwillingness to trust God. And as a result, there is this insatiable discontent that we have, this infinite just dissatisfaction. So this numbers passage, you know what it's showing us? This crazy story? This passage is showing us that the curable poison in the Israelites' bodies from these serpents is pointing to a deadlier poison in their soul from a deadlier serpent. Every single one of us here, every single person out there, has a raging thirst. I don't know, maybe... um, Maybe you remember that show, Behind the Music. It started a while ago and then got canceled and then started up again. Do you guys remember it? Anybody here on VH1, right? It's all about how, you know, people are, are striving to, to make it. They, they want to fulfill their dreams, and then when they do, they want to kill themselves or at least numb themselves. I mean, they got everything that they hoped for. What they thought they needed. Now they want to kill themselves. Now they want to numb themselves. Why? Because they're still empty. They got everything that they wanted or thought that they wanted, and it left them empty. Okay, let me ask you something. What is it that you think that you need to be okay? What is it that you think you need to, you know, make it so everything is fine? I'm telling you, even if you get it, It might be nice for a while, but it is not enough, and it will rip you off, and it will leave you empty. And it may even be good things. And these these rock stars, these hip-hop stars, whatever, they they experience this emptiness sooner than most of us because they get what we want before we do. And we are all well on our way with being unhappy with life. And nothing, nothing Nothing will ever be good enough unless there is some kind of intervention, unless there is some kind of cure. You know what? There is something in the center of our very being that's poisoned. There is this raging, this raging fever, an unquenchable fire that, that consumes anything that you throw in it. You know what? Like I said, it could be something incredibly good. 
It could be something that's typically viewed as a blessing. It could be food from heaven. It could be paradise where everything's perfect. But I'm telling you, even perfect things won't be good enough, won't be good enough, unless we are given life-giving treatment. I mean, we, what we see in this, this story in the book of Numbers, what we see is our own eternally fatal sickness. I mean, this is what Jesus is pointing to when he's talking with Nicodemus in, in the Gospel of John. What Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and what Nicodemus is teaching anybody who reads the Gospel of John is that we need to be healed. We need the medicine. But before we can take the medicine, there are the preps. Let me explain. If you have to go into the hospital and you have to get some drastic treatment, a lot of times there are preps for that treatment. And we see three in our text, three preps that God uses in our lives. First, if you're taking notes, the first one is trouble that wakes us up. Trouble that wakes us up. You know what? The people in this story, the Israelites here, they didn't see what was really wrong with them. They were completely blind to it. They thought they were fine. Everything's cool. Moses is the problem, God is the problem, and it was always somebody else's fault. They didn't see the real problem until they got sick. They didn't see what was really killing them until they started to die. They didn't see the, the real poison in their soul until they experienced the poison in their body. So, here's the deal. The basic truth is this. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, if you've been a Christian forever, or if you're a brand new Christian, if, if you're a teenager, you're single, you're married, grandpa or grandma, whatever it is. The basic truth is that we never really wake up to our real need on our own. We never really wake up to our real need on our own. Almost all wisdom, almost all spiritual growth comes from something going wrong in our lives, Right? You can point to it. And it wakes us up. And what it does is it graciously compels us to go to the great physician. You know what? It could be trouble in your, in your marriage. It could be trouble in other relationships. Your, your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Um, or, or maybe it's your, your children. Or, or, or maybe you're the child and... You just don't get your parents. You don't know why they're on your case all the time. Everything, there's just this constant tension in, in, in the home. Or, or maybe, you know, you lost your job and finances are tight. You don't know how you're going to make it. Maybe your health just absolutely tanked. Maybe it's some other kind of, of trouble. But here's the promise. God can redeem that pain and use it to wake us up. Why? Does he do that? Because he loves us and he doesn't want us to die spiritually. We may not understand what in the world is going on. We may not be able to connect all the dots in this lifetime. But 
God is in the business of redeeming his people unto himself and then transforming us to make us holy like Jesus, more like his son for his glory and our good. All right, so the second prep is this, friendships and good repair. All right, check this out in verse 5. The the Israelites are totally complaining against Moses. And two verses later, they're patching things up and say, we sinned against you. And then in verse 7, it says that Moses, their friend, prayed for the people. He ministered to them. Here's the deal. This is just the way it is, whether we like it or not, or value it or not. You will not. Are you looking for a life like a life-changing encounter with God? Does Christianity seem like just boring for you? Does it feel like you're just going through the motions and you're only here because your spouse dragged you here, your parents dragged you here, and you don't know what the big deal is? Here's the thing. You won't have any life-changing encounters with God without godly friends who love God. It's God uses in his sovereign grace, right, In his sovereignty, he uses godly friends to listen to you. He uses them to sometimes argue with you. He uses them to empathize with you. He uses friends to help you think things out and to live things out. You think everybody, I mean, it's so easy to think everybody else is the problem, that our circumstances are the problem. But here's the thing. That's why God put godly friends in our life, people in community, a community of grace in our life, because we cannot diagnose our own sin without loving, gracious friends. You can't do it. You can't do it. And if you're closed off to other people speaking into your life and, and, and pointing out where, where you might have a, a lack of faith, you're just going to wander into the wilderness completely lost. We, and... and not just that. Think about all the suffering that's, that's, in, that's been in your life, that's in your life, and in your future. We cannot face the hard times, our wilderness, without friends. Friends who support you, friends who pray for you, friends who challenge you, friends who build you up. You know what? I think about the trajectory of my life. I think about how I was in in high school and right after high school and how I went off of the the deep end. And I'm telling you, if if God did not place godly people in my life to show me godly friendship, like my wife Shannon and, and, and so many others, I'm telling you right now, I would be in the gutter. Because I was blind to my own need. I was just gonna do whatever I wanted to. I would have been in the gutter. I could not face my wilderness without them. And you know what? As we read this story, this, the, the Israelites, the people in the story, they could have never faced their wilderness without Moses. But friendships are not always easy to keep up, are they? You know why? Because we sin against each other. That's why. We do it all the time. But if we want to keep our soul in repair, we need friendships in repair. God works through durable friendships, durable friendships that last through thick and thin. Not just fair-weather friends, but people who are going to stick with you and have your best interests in mind, sacrifice for you. And maybe you don't have any friends like that. Be one. 
You're not the only one longing for a friendship. There are so many other people longing for this kind of a friendship. So be one. God works through durable friendships to fulfill his will. To fulfill his will. He works through those friendships to fulfill his will in your life. To fulfill your, his will in, in the church. To fulfill his will in the world. That's just the way he's wired things up. The third prep is this. It's the end of blame shifting. Look at verse 7 again. This is amazing. It says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. You know what? (laughs) What I find interesting is what they didn't say. You know what they did not say? They did not say, okay, so we sin, but, I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. All we did was complain about the food. I mean, I think this absolutely qualifies as an overreaction. I mean, you don't hear that from them. Why don't we hear that from them? Not a word. Well, it's because they know what they're guilty of. They know that it's their fault. They know that they are responsible for the problems in their lives right now. There is not a word of excuse. There is not a word of blame shifting. I mean, they just, right away, they say, we sinned. See, if you're looking for spiritual healing, if you're looking for, you know, experiencing God Spiritual healing starts when blame shifting stops. But you don't know what they did. You don't know what he did. You don't know what she did. You don't know what my parents did. You don't know what my kids did. You don't know what my boss did. You don't know what my coworker did. You don't know what my brother in Christ did in the church. My sister in Christ did in the, in, in the church. Spiritual healing starts when blame shifting stops. It's so easy to justify our blame shifting, isn't it? It's, a lot of times we go, God, it's God's fault. Why did he do this to me? Now, this is critical. This could be a short sermon if I stop right here. But I can't. It would be useless to you. Absolutely useless. Because this is not your medicine. Whatever biblical principles I've been riffing on, and they're good and they're, and they're valuable, but on their own they are worthless. Absolutely worthless on their own. These are only the preps. Uh, so many teachers will stop right here as if this is all we need. All we need to All we need is to hear what it is that we need to do or not do. But it's so much more than that. It's not less, but it's more than that. We still need the medicine. Without the medicine, the preps are no good. So what is the medicine? Verse 8. Well, um, you know, this kind of, in verse 8, you read it, and to me, it seems kind of messed up. Uh, At least at first. Of all of the things, of all the things God could tell Moses to do, to bring healing, it's almost like this is a sick joke. Look at verse 8. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, 
and everyone who is bitten, when he sees that, shall live. Wait a minute. Make a statue of the very thing that's biting and killing everybody and look to that and live? I mean, how about make a statue of something else that, that eats snakes? How about a statue of, you know, Ricky Ticky Tavi? Anybody not know who Ricky Ticky Tavi is? There's, there's about half of you. An old children's book and cartoon. I should have had a picture for that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, it's a mongoose. <laughs> they eat snakes. How about a statue of that, right? How can it be any comfort at all to go to something that looks like whatever it is that's killing you? I'd rather forget about the the snakes. I mean, I think this is a lame idea. I mean, didn't God know that in Genesis, the serpent represented evil? And in Leviticus, it was considered that serpents were considered to be unclean animals. I mean, they're going to look for that, look toward that for, for healing? What in the world was God thinking? The truth is, they probably never figured it out. And the truth is, Moses probably never figured it out. But even though they didn't understand, they still obeyed. I, I, find, this, I find this fascinating. And here's why. Because even in my own heart, and I, it is, I've been around long enough to know that it's common across the board. We will not obey God's word unless we understand it and accept it. Why does God say this? It makes no sense to me. So therefore, I don't care what it says here. I'm going to do whatever it is that I want. God says, don't do this. Why not? I could do it it if I want to because of this, 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 and this. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God says. I'm just going to do whatever it is I want. And we don't always understand but we have a loving father who does and he's proved that he could be trusted. I mean, when my kids were little, they didn't understand. You know, there were certain things they told them that they couldn't do. Like stick a knife in a light socket. Why? I mean, it looks like it'll fit. But we love them and so we hope that they will trust what we, we tell them. And then you become a teenager and you're a little bit better at arguing, right? I remember how I was. Yeah, but this, this, and that. And we do that as adults as well. If, if we don't think, if we don't understand why the Bible says don't do this or why the Bible says make sure you do that, and we don't understand it, we'll just forget it. Here, you know what? They were desperate. They saw their desperation and they obeyed. And, and what's cool, God, grace upon grace, God allows us to, to figure this out because centuries later in John chapter 3, in the middle of this talk between Jesus and Nicodemus, uh, we see the most famous verse in the scriptures, which is John 3.16. Some of you may know it. Some of you might even have it memorized. Let's read it together, and it says this. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then, right in the middle of Jesus explaining who he is, he says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus says this. He says, it is like the serpent in the wilderness. What that was, I am. This right here is our medicine. This is is what it is that we are so desperate for. This is exactly and only what it is that we need. Jesus lifted up on the cross bearing our poison. Wait, how can Jesus, the Son of God who's perfect, be like the serpent? Well, Paul tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That doesn't mean that Jesus became sinful on the cross, when, when he was being nailed to the cross, and when, when he hung there, we didn't see Jesus become cruel. We didn't see Jesus become hateful. Instead, while he was hanging on the cross, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right in the middle of all this evil and all this evil activity, this, this, this murdering, the murder of God the Son, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they, they do. He didn't become sinful, but legally speaking, he became sin. And he got what the serpent and evil and sin deserved. When Jesus said, I thirst, Jesus got the poison. He took our infinite dissatisfaction. And when Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took upon himself the hell of eternal uh, fire. And Jesus took upon himself the experience and the pain and the poison of our sin that we deserved. So that we could be healed. This is our medicine. Isaiah talks about Jesus when he says, by his stripes we are healed. You know what? God is so incredibly gracious, but he is also just. He's never just one or the other. He is gracious and just at the same time. A payment is always needed, and he paid it for us. And that brings us to our last point. How we get the medicine. So Nicodemus and Jesus are talking, and in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You know what? You know what's happening here? Jesus is is not telling Nicodemus that he's not just calling Nicodemus to be forgiven. It's so much more than that. He's not just calling Nicodemus to be forgiven. He's calling Nicodemus to be born again. 
Now I'll have to explain that a little bit because there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. In Numbers 21, we see that we need more than just forgiveness. We also need to be repaired, right? We know that, that we're not only guilty, we're damaged. We're, we, we know that we not only need to be pardoned, we need to be reborn. And so when the Israelites went to, to Moses and they confessed their sin, they weren't just forgiven, they were healed. This is exactly what we need. We must be born again. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit wakes us up to who we are without Jesus and, and what we have done against God. He makes us alive to see our need for Jesus. We need to see who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And once we were born again and once we see our, our need, once we wake up to our need for the medicine, Jesus Christ is lifted up on the cross, bearing our poison, and then we, we have the life we need to put our faith and trust in him. So how do we get the medicine? The answer is this, as we look to the cross in faith, Put your trust in him and in his payment. Oh, I did that already. I did that like a long time ago when I was in the sixth grade. I prayed a prayer and it's done. No, this is something that we're constantly going back to. It is an act of faith. Trusting in him and his payment. We need to see this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the medicine in our numbers passage. Verse 8 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Everyone, when he sees it, shall live. And and. In the book of John, Jesus says to Nicodemus, so must I be lifted up that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Now, how is seeing, how, how is seeing the way that we get the medicine that we need? Well, it's more looking than doing, okay? Okay. In fact, it is looking rather than doing. The truth of the matter is, we can't do anything to save ourselves. We, we cannot do anything to remain in God's good graces. We need to just trust Christ to do it all. Christ is the only hope that we have. Now, I'm winding down here, but... Um, I want to share with you a, a great story by C.H. Spurgeon, a famous British pe uh, preacher in the, the 1800s. And, and I think this kind of drives, us, drives it home for us. And it's, it's his story, his testimony about how he became a, a Christian. And it, it's a little bit long, but it's good, and I think you'll like it, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll close with this and say a few things, and then we'll be done. He writes of a day in January in 1850, and he says this. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm. One Sunday morning, while I was going to a certain place of worship, I could not go any further, and so I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sing so loudly that they made people's heads ache. 
but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved, and if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose, at least, at last, rather. A very thin-looking uh, man went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. <laughs> That's what he says. He was obliged to stick to the, test for the, to, to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was this. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a whole deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it is no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto, look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And when he had gone about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. It did not, I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. 
Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. I do from my soul confess that I never was satisfied till I came to Christ. What a great testimony. What a great testimony. Here's what's great about what we read here in the scriptures. What's great is that the medicine is not, now take this, get a lot of rest, and in about two weeks or so, you'll feel a little better. No. It was look, and bam, we live. That's how faith works. At the moment that we transfer our trust from all of the other things that we've been building our life on, all of the other things that we've been finding our identity in, all of the other things that that we've been looking to for our significance and for our value, when we transfer our trust from all of that to him, uh, all of his doing, we live. And you know what else? We're born again in an instant, but the, the healing keeps happening. It keeps going. Paul reminds us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. See, we were born again. He woke us up, enabled us to trust him. And then we were called to live another life, a life of, of holiness, serving him, glorifying him. And to the extent that we know Christ and to the extent that we find our joy in him first and foremost, who he is and what he has done for us, we'll be content no matter how much pain we experience in this life. We will stop blaming other people for our sin. And the healing continues and continues and continues because we're a new people. We're a new creation. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, (laughs) thank you so much for your grace. Father, thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for pointing out our need for you. We spend most of our lives not seeing and not acknowledging our need for you. And God, if we have not yet, up to this point, have seen our need for you, God, I pray that you would enable us to pray to you and ask you to show us. God, I pray everybody in this room would not be distracted by anything, but that we would think about what it is that you are saying to us here and now. We pray that you would show us our need for you. We pray that you would show us the way that we have sinned against you so that we can be liberated from our fatal sickness and and experience true life and spiritual healing in you. God, I, I just pray, Lord, that your kindness would lead us to repentance. God, I pray, Lord, that, that um, 
we wouldn't just be insulted when we hear that we have sin. That we would be gracious for the diagnosis so that we can look to the one who heals us. Heavenly Father, it is my prayer that every single one of us would, would live in humility in the shadow of the cross, knowing that, that it took nothing less than the death of God the Son to heal us. And God, as, as we reflect on that, I pray that it would build up our faith in you and enable us more and more to freely confess our sin and, and with confidence confess our sin and then find rest and grace in you. God, I pray if there's anybody here that has not trusted you yet, anybody here who has been investigating uh, Christianity or curious about um, Jesus and the gospel and trying to learn more, and, and they've come to a point where, where they're debating whether or not they should follow you and trust you and give their hearts and lives to, to you in response to who you are and what you've done for them, God, I pray that you would give them eyes to see Draw them to yourself. Give them the ability to follow you, the courage to follow you, so that they may experience relief. God, for the rest of us who have been Christians, whether for a little while now or for a long time now, forgive us for losing sight of our need for you and just always and only seeing what's wrong with other people. God, may the way our attitudes toward other people or uh, our self-righteous attitudes or words toward other people, um, may those be triggers to remind us to look at our own hearts and know that you are patient with us and gentle with us. God, to the extent that we know your grace, may we extend that grace to others. God, I, I pray that you would heal us this morning. We pray this in your